Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you as we open up the, the book of Malachi and ask that you show us what you would have to see from this. And what a God that it, we have that deserves to be honored from this chapter. And we just thank you in your precious name. Amen. Malachi. Uh, the name Malachi means my messenger. And it was, we know nothing about Malachi. We believe, most scholars believe that he was about the same time as Nehemiah and Ezra, sometime in that place, but we have no other references to him at all. And uh, the book is broken out basically in two parts, uh, chapters one and two. Uh, he pictures a very dark side of Israel and that they deserve punishment and they have not honored God. In chapters three and four, he gives a more promising side and talks about the, the promises that God has given Israel. So it's a very easily, it's, it, easy way to break it down. Uh, it's kind of written as a dialogue between God and his people. Uh, his favorite thing is, you have said, and, 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 but God has said type, type uh, thing. So we know that this was written in before, God, uh, before the New Testament period because it's quoted in the New Testament in several places malachi 2 and 3 says i loved you says the lord yet you say wherein have you loved us was not esau jacob's brother says the lord and yet i loved esau but i hated uh, i loved jacob yet i hated esau and that's quoted in romans 9 verse 13. Uh, malachi 3 1 says behold i will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. And if you, that should sound familiar because they use that to apply to John the Baptist in Matthew eleven ten and Mark 1, 2. And Malachi 5, 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before you coming before the coming and great and terrible day. And that's mentioned in Matthew 17, 12, Mark 9, 11, and 12, and Luke 1, 17. So we know that Jesus at least recognized this book as part of Scripture because he quotes from it. So just kind of laying out the foundation of Malachi. Malachi is a book you may or may not have studied before, but we're going to cover it over the next several weeks, at least four. Malachi 1, verse 1. The burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, wherein have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom says, we, have, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will, over, I will throw down. They shall call the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord will magnify, be, will be magnified from the border of Israel. So we'll stop there. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And it's kind of interesting that he uses the word burden. He's, he's saying the load, the tribute, you know, he, he's has this attitude that this is so heavy on him that he has to speak it. 
And for anybody who's done any teaching, they understand sometimes there's just times when you have to speak what God has put on your heart. And so we see this. God has put a very heavy load on, on Malachi, and Malachi is, has to give this message. And it's not a very good message, especially the first half of it, because he's going to criticize Israel and over this. And it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. This is kind of an interesting start for this section because they're going to have this long discussion back and forth, but God says, I loved you. I love you. And this is one of the things we need to remember. God loves us. He loves the world. And we've talked in, during the James that a lot of times the best way to introduce uh, a conversation with somebody about God will be just to start out, God loves you. And if you've ever tried it, it's kind of interesting when people will speak back to you. They'll go, oh, God can't love me, or there's no way God loves me. And it's amazing how many people do not believe that God loves them or can love them. And yet God says he loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And he says that in First John, we love him because he first loved us. God loves us. And this is how Malachi starts out his burden on him and then he says but you say wherein has he loved us how has he loved us how has he shown us that his love and if it's true that he is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah this is kind of a strange question in one side because remember they've been returned back to their land even though it's a hard land and it's not not been developed yet they've been returned back to the land God promised them which is great love even though it's a hard life and it goes and then God goes, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains, his heritage waste for the dragons, or as, as we've talked about, dragons can also be translated into dinosaurs. Uh, I don't like that version. The new versions use jackals, and jackals aren't even close to what it is. Uh, when, you read, when you read the new versions and say jackals, ignore that completely. Uh, they just want to come up with something and it doesn't make much sense. Uh, jackals do not lay land waste. <laughs> and we see that over and over. So then the King James used dragons, and I do believe the dragons were, were dinosaurs. And we've explained all that in past lessons. <laughs> but we look here, and it says that God loved Esau, uh, Jacob, and he hated Esau. And that was from the womb. When he said that, it was from the very womb in, in Psalm 47. Verse 4. It said, He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. And we, know, and we learn in the beginning that God chose them before they were even born because he knew their decisions. He knew who was going to respond and who wasn't. And God has a plan. He has great love for certain people. He has love for all of us in a very generalized sense, and he has a great love for those who are going to turn to him. But he loves everybody. It doesn't mean he wants to hang around. And this word for hated literally means to be opposed, detested, despised, not want to be around. There are those that God's going to say, I'm not going to spend my time by being around them. I'm not going to minister to them because he already knows that they're going to reject him. When Ham made fun of his father Noah, God cursed 
Canaan, all right, which was Ham's son, because he knew that Canaan was going to be worse than his father in his, in his, in his desire for sins. And so then he goes on, whereas Edom says, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolation. Thus says the Lord, they shall build and I will throw down and they shall call the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. Edom, the son of Esau, says, I'm impoverished. I, I have great problems. I've been beaten down, but I'm going to return. I'm going to build. God says, except, for he, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that attempt to build it. And Edom was going to fight God and said, I'm going to keep rebuilding. And God says, okay, you keep building, I'm going to tear down. And there are people that God sets his face against and, and says, We're just going to, I'm going to make things hard for them until they come to me. The lost always are in this position. Sometimes people who are saved are in this position when they want to battle against God. But God keeps saying, I'm going to do the things to draw people to me. And we've shared this over and over. Sometimes, and the psalmist always was griping, God, why are, the, why are the wicked getting away with all this evil? Why are the wicked getting away with all this evil? And God says, just be patient. And it's kind of interesting, if you get to know people, you listen to the testimonies, when they seem to have everything, they're still not happy, they're still depressed, they're still, you know, they have their moments of happiness, they have their moments of, of pleasure, but they always know they're missing something. I was talking just a couple of weeks ago with somebody who goes, I used to have everything, and they, he was at the prison, he goes, I used to have everything, I played, I played, uh, guitar for the band, you know, the big bands that toured around. I went on tours. I've been around the world. He goes, but I didn't know God and I was never happy. He goes, I got into drugs and alcohol and all these things because I needed something. Anybody looking at him without knowing his inner, inner demons would have said he had everything. You know, he had, he was, just, he was basically a backup star, but he played, you know, he was good enough to play with the big bands. And he ended up getting nothing and turning to God and, and realizing that God was what he wanted and needed. And if you get to know some people who have wealth, they do the same thing. They seem to have everything, but they're never totally satisfied with it because everybody is looking really for God in the long run. God is there and we need him to be totally fulfilled. And people will see this and God says, they're, you know, Edom's going to keep building, I'm going to tear down and they're going to and they shall call them the border of wickedness. They're going to play a place where wickedness reigns. And it says the Lord has indignation against them forever. And indignation is a strong word. He's defiant against them. He's cursed them. He abhors them. And abhors, we've talked about a, something that's abhorred is very, you know, ugly and, and something you don't want to be around. And this is what God says of Edom. I'm, I'm indignant against them. I do not want to have anything get, uh, uh, with them. And it says in verse 5, And your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord is magnified from the border of Israel. It says people are going to see and magnify God. And we, we see this over and over. Israel wandering, uh, coming into the promised land, and the people are remembering what God has done to, to, to beat their enemies how he's destroyed Egypt, how he's destroyed the, all the countries that have come against him, and he's they've destroyed them. 
They've taken over these lands before they even come into the promised land and they're going, how can these people do this? They're not, they should not be able to do this. And they look at their God and say, their God is the deliverance. And God will be magnified. When, when we stand up for him and he blesses us, he will magnify and be lifted up. He will be glorified, and that's the whole purpose of his dealings with people, is that he is glorified. And, and it says uh, he will be magnified from the border of Israel, that Israel will be the one that magnifies him. And for years, that's the way it was when they were in their country. And God's returned them back to their borders, and they're going to be lifted back up, and God's going to bless them. He's going to give them deliverances until they fail again. And at the end of their failure, that you know, when the Roman Empire came over, took over that area, they were still able to worship for a long time. They had made an agreement with Rome saying, okay, you, we're, we, we will capitulate and let you come in and we'll give you your taxes, but just let us run our own, our own little country. And Rome did that. Rome was very interesting. They came on your borders. They sent, a, sent an envoy over usually and said, if you surrender, we'll be nice to you. If you don't surrender, we're going to crush you. And if those who surrendered got treated fairly nice, you know, they got to have their own little governments and, and as long as they were obedient, they were allowed to rule themselves. And they had to pay taxes, sometimes very heavy taxes, but they were able to do things. Israel rebelled at the end of 70 AD and, and Rome crushed them right after Jesus's death and resurrection and the start of the church. So we see Israel lifting up the glory of God we see Israel when it was brought back in to existence in, in 48, when they were brought back into, into existence, God blessed them. They went into battles and they, were, they won battles they shouldn't have won. And it was amazing that you know, the battles they won against the enemies that, that they shouldn't have won because God delivered them and God was lifted up. Verse 6, the son honors his father and a servant his master. Then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts unto you? O priest that despise my name, and you that say, wherein have we despised your name? You offer polluted bread upon my altars and say, wherein have we polluted you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer, that, offer it now to your governor, if he will be pleased with you, or accept your person, says the Lord of hosts. So here's another conversation God's having with his people. He goes, a son honors or builds up his father, and a servant his master. And then God goes on, okay, in the flesh, the fathers are honored, and your masters are obeyed. And that's the way it should be in life, and it's generally the way it is. And he goes, if I be a father, and God says, has always said that he's been a father to Israel, he goes, where is my honor? The people were not honoring him. And again, if he's a contemporary of Nehemiah, remember they went back to reestablish the, the Jerusalem. They were to build the temple. And if you remember the days of Nehemiah, what did they do? They built their own houses and their own businesses and ignored God's temple and didn't worship God. They weren't, they weren't lifting him up. They weren't making him special. They ignored him. And God here is saying, hey, if I'm really the father, where's my honor? And if I'm, if, and, and if you're, I'm just your master, 
Where's my obedience? Okay, he's going, he's going from one extreme to the other. He goes, if I'm, if I'm the father, you should be loving me enough to obey and give me honor. And if all you want to do is acknowledge me as master, there should be fearful obedience to what I've given instruction to. And the people were in a place where they were ignoring him completely. Going, well, you know, we're not building the temple. We were sent back to build the temple, but God, we're just going to build our own homes. And this is what Ezra said when he came back. What is it that you've done? You, you've built your own homes and the temple is still in ruins. And how are you worshiping? Because it's, in, not, in, it's not established. And then it says you've polluted the table or desecrated. They weren't doing the things they were supposed to. They were offering the least of everything. And that's what he gets into in verse 8. And if you offer the blind for a sacrifice, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and the sick, and if you remember when we studied Leviticus, they were to offer the best of their flocks and not the worst. And this is why when people are not honoring God, they, they give God leftovers. God, uh, you can have, if there's any money left over at the end of the month, I'll give you, I'll give you, some, give you a little bit of money. God, well, you know, all I've got in my pocket is $5. I'll give you $5. <laughs> And a lot of people think they're doing really good if they give God five, 10, 20 bucks. And God is saying, I want your best. And he asked for a tithe, as Malachi will tell us later on, 10% of what he gives us. And he, God here is saying, you're giving me the stuff that nobody wants. You know, you're giving me, you know, he goes here, you're giving me the lame and the sick of your animals. And I love what he goes, you know, if you think I should be taking it, go give it to your governor and see if, it, if he likes it. <laughs> you know, give the, give the blind, lame, uh, lame sick, sick lamb to your government, uh, governor and see if that's going to get you an audience with him, if he's going to be pleased with you. You know, and he's kind of making a point, because if they were trying to get in to see the governor, they would bring a good gift to the governor. Uh, but because they don't see God, they're willing to give him the garbage, the leftovers. Well, God, I, I can't sell this thing because, you know, it's blind, it's lame, it's, you know, it takes extra, extra, you know, a lot of extra care, so God, you can have it. And this is the sad thing that oftentimes the world does this all the time when they're trying to placate God, you know. Well, God, I, I need a favor, so I'm going to give you uh, 20 bucks. That's what I have in my pocket. That should be a really good gift or, for the church. And they should, and God, you should really appreciate it. That's twenty dollars more than than you had before, God. You should really take and bless this. Now, for some people, twenty dollars would be a significant offering. If, they, if all they're making is two hundred, three hundred dollars a month, you know, then that would be a significant gift. But if you're trying to placate God and, and make Him happy with you, God is saying that doesn't even begin. You know, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that in the flesh. Why would you do it in this life? Besides the fact that we can't placate God with gifts. Okay? He's never going to be happy with what we give him. It's never going to be something that will make him say, okay, you've done, so, you've done so well here, I'm going to bless you special because of, your, because of your obedience. Because he says we're all sinners and we deserve punishment. And no matter how good, no matter how much we give, if we had a million dollars in our pocket and we gave God a million dollars, it would not be enough to say, oh, you're just so special. Because God owns everything. And even if he didn't, he could create anything he wanted. <laughs> and so we cannot give him. But he's also saying, why would you give me less than you would give 
the world. He goes, if you were trying to get in to see the governor and you presented him with a, a lame, blind, sickly sheep, you're not going to get in and see the governor. He's, you, know, you might end up in jail more than, more than get to see him. And he goes, and this is what you're giving me. And, he, and here he's not saying that this would have brought an audience with him, but he's saying, you're treating me with less respect than you would your own dignitaries. And he's bringing this in. You wouldn't do this. You would not do this, so why are you doing it to me? And that God is really trying to bring this out. I am above them, and yet you don't honor me. And he's drawing this conclusion. I deserve honor. You didn't give it to me. I deserve it. If you don't want to give me honor, I at least deserve the fear of, of being the master. You're not giving that to me. You're bringing me these, these sickly, worthless things and somehow thinking that I should be happy with them and you wouldn't do that to get an get a audience with the governor. And he's really just saying, this is how evil you are. And if we're falling into any of this, we want to be careful. You know, are we treating God less than we would somebody that we really wanted to have an, an audience with? You know, if I want to have an audience with somebody and I'm going to give them the... the now here's my three pennies. Give me a, you know, give me give me an audience with you. You know, here's my here's my leftovers. This is all I can afford for you. Know, I want to I want to have an audience in your, you know, and give you my petition. Go to the mayor or go to the council. Of course, we can just do that and get on the agenda. But you understand what I'm saying, though. And that's one thing we are called to be bond servants to Jesus and to God, so we learn to be like Him because He's going to be the the righteous example that we're at the feet of, learning to serve. This is the whole idea that God's saying, you know, you're not even giving me the respect that you would a worldly person. And verse 9 goes, And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto you. This has been your, this, is, this has been by your means. Will he regard your person, says the Lord of hosts. So he's going, hey, beseech God. Beg him. Ask him for things. But he goes, this has been what you've been like. You've been giving me your leftovers. You've been giving me the stuff nobody wants. And you're going to expect me to give you stuff. And this is kind of what we oftentimes will do. And this is, we've said this over. We have the expression, you know, a lot of times people go, I've tried everything else. I'll, I'll pray or I'll ask God or I'll seek God. And it's after we've done everything we can think of doing, after we've made a bigger mess out of everything, we go and say, God, I, uh, can you help me? And this is exactly the point that God's making here. You go, you've ignored me, you've ignored me, and then you turn around and you want to ask me for stuff. And we see this all the time. People will say, there's no God, he doesn't care for us, but let something really bad happen, especially if it's called an act of God, a hurricane or tornado, earthquake, and then people will go, why did God let this happen? You know, well, you didn't even care about God you know, before. Now it's all God's fault. <laughs> this is something we've got to be careful of. When we go through bad things, it's probably our fault. Now, God lets it happen, but it's still our fault. We have done stuff. We have led, made the wrong decisions. We have laid the wrong foundation. And then we dare to blame God. And we do it as Christians, but the world does it all the time. Why would God let these innocent people die? Well, as we've said before, the first question is, are there innocent people? And the answer to that is, according to God, no. We're all sinners. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve, deserve death. So in reality, the first part of that question is wrong. There weren't any innocent people. 
okay? Uh, when people ask me, why does God let bad things happen to good people? And my, my answer is usually, why does God let good things happen to bad people? Because we're all bad. Okay, remember the, the person that came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus answers, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. So he's saying, basically he was saying, are you calling me God, or are you just deceived? So, and we need to keep that in mind. If we get what we deserve, I am very glad that God is a merciful God. He does not give us everything we deserve. And that includes the world. He doesn't give the world what they deserve. Because if he gave us everything we deserve, this world would be eliminated in the next second if God was to give us what we deserved. Because all of us, even those who are following him, don't deserve any blessing. So I will, when I hear people say, I just want what I deserve, I go, no, you don't want what you deserve. You want God's grace. You want his love and his grace. You do not want what you deserve. And here God is basically telling them, you've come to me, you, you're, you've mistreated me. Why should I listen? Why should I even listen to you but now that you want something? And oftentimes God will do that to people. He'll go, well, you've ignored me, you've ignored me, and now you want it. Let me let, me let you suffer for just a little while so that you know that it's what you deserve. But he can also be gracious and say, okay, I'm going to bless you in spite of the fact that you've ignored me because you've turned to me. Really depends on how we come to him. If I come to him in, with repentance and sorrow, God, I'm so sorry I have ignored you, I've sinned, I've been, you know, and you come with this sorrow, then God will say, here's your blessing. If I just turn to him and said, God, you know, this is really ridiculous, I need your help, and there's no sorrow, no repentance, God may or may not help, and probably won't, because we've, we've dug our own pit, and he's going to say, okay, let you, you know, let's see you fall into it. And all through Proverbs, it says that very thing. The, the wicked dry, dig their pit for, for their enemy, and they fall into it. And people usually will fall into their own pits that they, de they design, eventually. They may get away with it for the first couple of times, but eventually they get caught up in their own pit. And you know they, they make this trap for people, and eventually they fall into that, a very similar trap or one just like it or even their own. And they will be disciplined because of what they've done, but it's their own creation of that discipline. And God is always right there. The minute we're ready to say, God, I am a sinner, I have sinned and repent and forgive me, he is right there to help us. Always. And, that's, and we've talked about that. Was the, when, the, when we get to the book of Revelation and he's talking about all these tribulations and trials he's throwing on the people, it is not just to make their life miserable for making their life miserable. It is for making their life miserable so that they'll turn to God. They'll recognize the depth of their despair and say, God, I need you. That's his whole purpose of all the trials, all the temptations is for people to turn to him and saying, I need you. I can't do it myself. Even for us as Christians, when we go through hard times, the, the, the process is for us to turn to him and say, God, I need you. And God says, great, let's go be victorious in this area. And every time we fail and we turn around and repent, he picks us up and says, you're my child, I forgive you, <laughs> and, and lifts us back up. When we are successful by turning to him, he says, 
great, you were a good, good, testi uh, good testimony this time. You, you lifted me up and you know, I'm going to be glorified. And either way, he is glorified. Whether it's by his mercy picking us up or him delivering us through his grace because we, we've turned to him. But God is looking for that chance to be glorified. He's, he really wants us to be victorious through him. He won't let us be victorious in our own strength because he's not going to let our flesh glory. He's not going to say, okay, well, you built, you, you did these really great things and you really built the kingdom of God. <laughs> you know, he's going to say, I did it through you. He uses the weak. He uses the, the, the frail to do things for him. And I've seen it over and over where he takes somebody who has great weakness and lifts them up. And people look at him and go, well, how could that person do that, get that accomplished? Because God's doing it. They've allowed God to use them. And it's fun to watch. I've seen it over and over and over again how God will use people that make no sense that they get used, and God uses them. And they get built up, they get edified, they get, they get used by God, and great things happen. I've seen people that have taught classes, and you're going, how can they? They can barely read the Bible. How can they teach? You know, I've watched people who can barely sing, and yet God gives them the grace to be able to sing and lead singing. I've seen people rise up and serve that, that nobody would have believed that they could serve because God is in it, and he utilizes them because he wants to be lifted up. He doesn't want people to glory in their own flesh. He wants to be the one lifted up and say, God did this. God is the one that did this. God is the one that changed this person's life. And all I was the one that gave the message and God used it and, and touched them and they got saved and, all, and they got miraculously saved and they're a new creation and they're totally different. This is the thing that God is using for us. He wants to be lifted up. Verse 10, who is there among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept the offering at your hand. So here he's saying that I'm not going to listen to you. You're, you're, you're coming to me, but you're not coming with the right heart. You're not coming. He goes, you're shutting the doors with, for, for no reason. You, you know, you're not even the ones that light the fire on the altar. You know, and I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to take pleasure in your sacrifice. And many times in the Bible, we're told that God would like obedience rather than sacrifice. And he's telling this to the Jews who keep getting into this idea of, I've got to do the right things. All the time, I've got to do. Uh, in 1 Samuel 15, we see Saul, before the battle, he's losing his people. Samuel has taken a long time to come. And Saul, the king, decides he's going to give the sacrifice to God. And the king was never to give the sacrifice to God. It had to be the priest. And so he gives a sacrifice. And Saul tells him, God would rather have obedience than sacrifice. Saul, you should have just obeyed. Jesus had great problems with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because the scribes and Pharisees visually did everything right. They made sure they gave their sacrifices. They went to the temple when they were supposed to go to the temple. They gave their offerings. They, they supposedly gave their tithes. You know, they did their prayers at the right time. They, they wore their phylacteries with the Bible verses you know, stuck to their foreheads and their wrists. And they had long jackets with long you know, um, 
tassels on the bottom of them to show how spiritual they were. And God's saying, you're doing the right things, but your heart is far from me. He called them open sepulchers. He called them uh, hypocrites. He goes, even when you're praying, you pray very loud so everybody knows that, you know, your prayers and hears your prayers. He goes, and God's not hearing them because you're not doing them correct with your heart in the right place. He goes, you're, you're doing all the things. You're looking good, but you're not doing what God wants. And God is looking for obedience. That doesn't mean we go out and do lots of wrong things because because it doesn't matter what we sacrifice, but he's looking for that obedience that comes from the heart. When we tell people, you know, this is what God says, I'm not going to stand around and judge them for not doing it. That's between them and God. It really is. I mean, if somebody's going to commit the sins that God says are sins, they'll have to answer to God. I just need to love them. Jesus loved the people. He didn't tell them, go and sin. He would say, go and sin no more. He didn't sit there and beat them over the head for their sin. But he goes, okay, you're coming to the right place. You're forgiven. Now go and do what you're supposed to do. And this is what God's looking for. He's looking for that obedience that comes from the heart. Not just the obedience that makes everybody think I'm good. Okay? It really matters. The real truth of the matter is not what you do in front of everybody else, but what do you do when you're in your own home with your doors closed? And saying, nobody's seeing me. What will you do then? There are many Christians that get into pornography and all kinds of vile things behind their doors when nobody knows what's going on. They'll get in, you know, they may not be dare take a drink out in the public, but, you know, they may get wasted in their home and make everybody think, <laughs> look at me, I'm not a problem, you know. Or, and it can happen with any of these sins, you know. It, you know, if they think it's in private that nobody's going to see them. There's been stories of especially pastors who, have, who would preach against adultery and all this, and then they'll drive over a couple of towns, especially in the old days when you didn't have pictures and everything going, and go down and, and pick up the prostitute, you know, and, and because nobody in that town would recognize them. And again, God is saying, what are you going to do? How am I being lifted up? in obedience rather than just making people look at you and think you're doing right. And this is what he's saying. You can't close. You're not going to be the one that starts these fires. You're not going to be this. You, you are what you are. And we need to be that obedient person that's going to listen to God and obey him no matter what. And this is what he's saying. His reputation is going to be lifted up. What is God's reputation in our life? Verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, says the Lord of hosts. And this is the, this is the title that God's using a lot, the Lord of hosts in this book which is he's God of the army or God of, of war. He is saying, I am the one and I am, and when he uses the God of host, he's talking about his vengeance side. I will be obeyed because I deserve to be obeyed. And if not, you're going to see my anger. And this whole thing at this point is God saying, get right. 
get right or else. And it says here, I love this, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name, my reputation, God says, is going to be great, not amongst the Israelites, which is what you would have expected, but amongst the Gentiles. The other nations are going to recognize my power. I'm going to be exalted amongst those nations. And as a prophecy, it happened. Jesus died and the church was, is called to go to the Gentiles primarily. It will preach to the Jews, but for the most part, it's been the Christian church is a church full of Gentiles because the Jews have rejected their Messiah up to this point. Not all of them, but the majority of them have rejected the Messiah. And God's saying, I'm going to be great amongst the Gentiles. And this is kind of amazing. All through the Old Testament, God says, the Gentiles are going to worship me. I want, I want my name exalted amongst the Gentiles. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he says, you're going to have one law for all people, not just you Jews, but all the Gentiles and everybody that will have the same laws, the same rules. The Gentiles can come in and offer sacrifices. And yet the Jews made it so that the Gentiles could not come in and worship God in the tabernacle or the temple. And they blocked it, even though the God said, I want them coming. And this was the mystery that Paul talked about so often, the mystery of God was that Gentiles were going to be reached by God and that they were going to be brought into the family because the Jews had this separate thing. We're God's chosen people. You know, we can't have these Gentiles coming in unless they become Jews. We, they just can't come in because we are so special. And they are special. God called Abraham and said he was going to bless his seed. And so there is a specialness of them. And God has blessed them special. And when people move against Israel, they are judged. When they bless Israel, they are blessed. God has done great things with them, but he has not said, I'm ignoring the rest of the world. But you know, we as Christians can sometimes do the same thing. God, we have our church. We're special. We, we like what we have. We you know, we don't want to go over there to the prostitutes and the drunks and the, and the drug users and the, all these other people. You know, they've got to stay out there, God. And God's saying, no, I died for them as well. And sometimes churches will do just that. They'll push back and say, uh-uh, you're an adulterer. You're a homosexual. You've got you to stay far away from the church. We can't, we can't be associated with those kind of people. And Jesus says, I died for them get them saved and I'll come in and I'll change who they are. They keep up appearances. Keep up appearances, yeah. Well, because they're trying to say we're better. In one sense, there is just this. We're better than they are. We've, we've got to look good because it's my reputation I've got to protect. And God's saying, I don't care about your reputation. I care about my reputation and I love them. I love them and I died for them. And my reputation is that I want them in heaven with me. This is so very important for us to understand there are going to be people in heaven that we're going to be so surprised to see because when we were on earth we looked at him and said wow that, can't, that person can't be saved well because salvation is a relationship with Jesus Christ we're going to be surprised sometimes at who is there and there's going to be people that we think are so good that they've got to be in heaven that we're going to be surprised that they're not there because this is a relationship with the God of the universe that changes our heart not what we do on the outward appearance of things. And this is going to be something that God is saying, I want the Gentiles. I want the Gentiles to be knowing my name and my reputation. 
and I'm going to be great amongst them, God said. And this pretty much happened with the church, that God was exalted to the Gentiles, that we were able to come into fellowship with him because of what Jesus Christ did and, and work with it. He says, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great amongst the heathen. The idea of incense has this picture of the prayers of people being ascending into heaven for the, for the incense that they burned in the altar, on the incense altar in the temple, in the tabernacle. And the actual sweet-smelling savor savior of the offering being burnt was the whole idea of, God, we, we lift ourselves up to you. We're, we're, we're coming before you. And that was, what he was being, that was being what was said. And God said, the smoke of the offering was a sweet smell to him. Why? Not because you burnt the, the meat, because burning meat stinks. <laughs> you know, it doesn't smell good to burn meat. <laughs> uh, but God says, what's behind it? Your sacrifice, you, you put it up there because for the burnt offering, you're saying, I want to be fully dedicated to God. For the sin offering, God, we're, we know that we have to shed blood and we want, we're offering this so that you will take and forgive us of our sins. All, and the, you know, all the five offerings had their special attachment to them. And God says, it's sweet to me, not because you were the burning flesh, but the attitude behind it. Which is why he said, I desire obedience more than sacrifice. The sacrifice wasn't what he was looking for. He wanted people to obey from their heart. The sacrifice was just a symbol of that obedience. We encourage everybody to read their Bible through every year. Why? Not because... Reading the Bible has any great special significance other than it is God's word. And we put his word in our heart. We put his word in our mind. And the more we put his word in our heart and mind, the more we get changed to be like him. But just reading the Bible is not necessarily going to do that. We need to pray. We need to look at the word and saying, God, teach me. And I've said this over and over. It's amazing to follow a planned scripture reading and find out how much of that reading each day is applicable to the day when you, as you're going through the day and you're going, wow, that's, I'm in a situation that I read about today. <laughs> or, God, you already, you've told me how to answer this, this problem because I just read it today or yesterday. Or, you know, but very recently I read it. And specifically, many times it happens to be that day that you read it. You know, you read something that morning and the next thing you know, you're being tested in that area that you read. And it's like, wow, it's, you know, it's not just flipping the Bible open. You know, it's purposely trying to read the whole Bible through. I'm working on getting the Bible taught, the whole Bible from, from you know, all 66 books. It's taken a long time. We've only got about 35% of it done in four years. So at that rate, it'll take us 12 years to get through the whole book. And if I'm still here in 12 years, we'll start all over again. And it'll take another 12 years, and that put me pretty old. I don't, know if that'll, I don't know if that'll manage to go beyond that one, but if God wills it, I'll go another 12 years to get through. But the purpose of this is not just to make us smart in his word, not to make us smart in what God wants, but to change who we are, to change our lives and make us more like the Father. And that's his whole purpose in a relationship is the more we draw close to him, the more we're going to become like him. The old adage that birds of a feather flock together is very true. Somebody who's into sin will draw together those people who are 
attracted to that sin, and then they'll find themselves, even if they didn't want to, committing the sin that the group is involved with. The more we draw together with God and his people, the more we're going to become like him. And this is how we become a better person. We draw close to God, and God changes us. We don't strive and work hard to become better. It happens. It happens that I become better. It happens that I start following him more. It happens that I become more obedient. And God is there saying, let's make this happen. Let's see this go through. And it's all because he is going to be exalted. His name is going to be exalted. As he changes our lives, he gets that exalting. When people go, wow, you are, you're doing so good in this area. You're, you're growing so much. You go, yes, God is doing a good work in me. Because it's God that does it. When we, when we say thank you for being, when we're told thank you for serving him, it's like, okay, you, know, you don't learn to just accept it, but you really you know that it's God. When people tell me, you know, thank you for teaching, I'm going, you're, you're welcome, but it is God who's doing the, the teaching. It is God that's helping change your life. I appreciate the thanks, but it really is God <laughs> that does it. Because without him, uh, I, I already know I'm not the greatest speaker in the world. And I've told everybody quite often, you know, usually I think about the right thing to say about three hours after I'm done talking to the person. And I think about all the wonderful things I should have said <laughs> to help them. Uh, unless God's there, I don't think of the right words quite often. But God is there most of the time. And he's going to honor. Verse 12, but you have profaned it, says the Lord. The table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. He says, you have profaned his name. He's telling the Jews this. You, you, are, you are polluting my name. You're making it ugly. You're making it not something that people want to come to. And this is the problem. When we try to get legalistic with people and say, here's your list of rules, and if you do these rules, you'll be okay, we're profaning the, the grace of God. God died for their sin. And in the, when we try to keep rules... People have two reactions to rules. On one side, they want the rules because it tells them what to do and how to do things. On the other side, the sin nature pops up and says, who are, who, why am I being given these rules? I don't want to obey them. And we see both sides to this. Well, I want to, give the, I want to keep these rules because I want to look good to God, but the sin nature is saying, well, I don't want to follow rules. You know, don't give me rules to follow. And this is why in Galatians 2.20, we are to crucify the flesh. It is to be crucified and put to death because it will not want to follow rules. Period. The flesh does not want to follow rules. And I'm very much that way. If somebody tells me you can't do something, every fiber of my being goes, why not? And if you can't give me a very good reason for why not, I'm going to be very much wanting <laughs> to do it anyway. And it might not even have been something that I wanted to do in the first place, but as soon as I'm told you can't, this flesh comes up and like, watch. Rules are meant to be broken. Rules, yeah, well, that's the human nature part of it. Rule, rules aren't meant to be broken, but the flesh will tell you the rules are meant to be broken. And we all know that feeling. You know. I know that I'm not the only person out there that has that problem with rules. I mean, that... It is human nature to want to disobey. It is human nature to want to push the limits. 
And our founding fathers understood that about government. That's why they put all the checks and balances on government so that it could not expand the way it has become evil. And it was supposed to have checks, that this group was supposed to check the other one from being, taking too much power. And all those checks and balances have kind of been thrown out the window in, in recent years. Again, we shouldn't be operating from fear. Even when God was saying that, it wasn't to bring us to operate out of fear. It is to, we're supposed to be motivated in, I want to serve God because I want to serve him. Not because I'm afraid of him, not because I'm fearing that I'm going to be judged if I do this thing that's wrong. True motivated life with God comes from that desire of love to him that I want to serve him because I love him. Not because I'm worried about him having a big club over my head and beating me over the head a few times if I disobey. God is willing to do that. You know, he will do that if need be. But his whole purpose really is, just as he said there, if I'm a father, where's my honor? And this doesn't mean as much today with you know, so many bad fathers out there. But for me, it means a lot. I wanted to do things that would make my dad happy with me. Not because I felt that he was going to beat me to death if I didn't. I, I wanted to say, this is my father, and I respect him enough that I want to do the things that please him. And this is the way God wants us to do, is we want to do the things that he'll be happy with. Not because it's going to give us brownie points or make him, make him happier and say, oh, you can come into my heaven. No, it's just that I love him so much that I want to please him. It's the way a relationship should be between a husband and a wife. I hear too much of this, I, I'm do, I have to do these good things, otherwise she'll be mad at me or he'll be mad at me. Wrong motivation. I do the things that my wife will like just because I want to do things for her. I love my wife enough that I want to do things that please her. I will sacrifice much of what I do because I love her enough that I want her to be happy. And this is where God is with relationships and things. Most marriages fail because people are trying to look at what am I going to get out of this marriage rather than what can I do to make this person happy. The world will tell us that marriage is 50-50. You give, I give, and you know, we'll all be happy if we all just give and take. God teaches us that it's 100%. I do what pleases my spouse. And they should be doing the same thing if they're going to do it God's way, but it really doesn't matter. If I'm following God, it doesn't matter how they respond or what they do, because God says, you give. You give what, what, what I'm telling you to do. And we leave it to God. God's our defense. If they're going to be mean and nasty to us when we're giving and take advantage of us, God will take care of that. He will deal with it. But God says, I want you to love. He loved us that way. We're his enemies before, and Christ died for us. And he gives, and he gives. We accept Jesus' sacrifice and, and his sin, and he changes who we are, and he comes into us, and he lives with us, and he continues to give without the expectation, ex expectation that we are going to become something that we aren't. He knows he's going to have to change us from being inside by being who we are, and he, becomes, he fills us so much. And we've talked about this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes into our life and changes, pickles us, as we've said before, changes who we are, not because we're trying to change, but because he is there enveloping us and enduing us with his spirit, and we become more like him. 
And we've talked many times about this. This is what he does. He changes us from the inside out. And eventually he goes, we look back, and we've said this over and over, we look back at our life and realize, you know, the sin I used to do you know, last year that I had all this problem with, I haven't done it in a year, two years, three years, five years, whatever it might be. And we realize God took this away. And it wasn't me striving and working to follow the rules and keeping God's plan. It was God saying, I'm just going to take this away from you. Here it is. It's gone. 13. You said also, behold, what weariness is it? How have we snuffed at it? Says the Lord of hosts, you have brought that which was torn and lame and sick, and you have brought the offering. Should I accept this from you, says the Lord? And they're, they're going, you know, what's, what's your weariness? You know, what's your problem, you God? You know, how have we wearied you? And, and how have we blown on it is what it snuffed really means, blown, blown it out, you know, blowing out a candle type thing. You know, we've, we've blown on what you want. And God says, you brought, you're bringing me the junk. He's back to, you're bringing the junk to me. You know, why should I, you know, you're wearying me. You're, you keep bringing me all this stuff that is, worthless and trying to say I should be happy to get it and it's just garbage and we all know if somebody if somebody was trying to get your attention and they brought you an old broken down you know object you'd look at them like what are you doing unless you're a junk collector and like junk but you know maybe it would be for the right person it might be the right thing to bring but most people aren't going to you know here I got this book for you and it's all tattered and torn and you know, you can't even read half the pages because somebody has spilled coffee on, on, on the book or soda and it, it sticks together and you go, here's your, I know you love to read, here's your book. Here's a book for you. You're going to look at that and say, what, what am I going to do with this? And this is what God is saying. Verse 14, but cursed be the deceiver which, ha, which has in his flock a male and vows and sacrifice unto the Lord a corrupt thing, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. He goes, deceiver, trickster. Kind of could be deceived as a, a change to knave, a tricky person, a rogue. He goes, you've got, you've got the good. And he goes, you've made a vow. You've got, you've got the right animal in your flock. You've made a vow. And in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 22, it talks about when you made a vow to God and you kept it, you were to bring an offering to him at the completion of your vow. And that offering was supposed to be a first-year sheep of perfect condition. And God's saying, hey, you've made vows and you're bringing me the garbage. You made a vow to me and you, you supposedly kept it and then you brought this corrupt animal into my presence. And by the way, you have the other good ones. You know, you keep the corrupt one and, and eat it for your family, but you give me the good. And the reason that he says it, I am a great king. Basically saying, I deserve it. A king's job was to protect the people, to, to, to help them, to protect them from their enemies, to provide the streets and, the, and the, all the necessities and, and keep the land safe. He goes, and I'm a great king. I'm doing my part. And you're coming in here with all this garbage. And he goes, and by the way, my name is dreadful or revered or, or lifted up amongst the heathen. And Lord of Hosts, it's all through this book. He mentions Lord of Hosts frequently in this book. And because he's, he's lifting up his vengeance. I am a God that deserves to be 
listen to. I'm not, we're not talking about uh, Yahweh Shalom. We're not talking about Yahweh uh, Jireh, the provider. He goes, right now we're talking about I'm the God of the army. I'm the one that needs to be obeyed because in this case he's talking about his wrath. He goes, I'm the God that will strike you dead if you don't start obeying. And this is a series. This title that he's using is very serious. He's going, this is the God of host. He expects to be obeyed. He expects you to do what he says, not because he's even wanting you to do it, but because he deserves it. If for no other reason, he deserves obedience. You know, he's given us his love. He's given us his protection. He gives us what we need. And for if no other reason for us to honor God through obedience, it's because he deserves it. Even if we can't give it to him because of love. And that goes back to that very beginning. I'm, I'm the father. I deserve the, I deserve the honor just because you should love me enough to give me honor. And he goes, but if you can't give it to me because of that, I'm also the master. And you should be obeying me with honor, with obedience, because you fear the punishment of the master. So, and God's saying, either way, I'll take it. I'd prefer it to be the father. But if all you can do is do it out of fear, then do it out of fear. But I'd rather it be out of love. And this is where the true obedience to God is, is out of love. Now, right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you that you are a God that deserves to be obeyed and that you desire that obedience and that you will reward that obedience. And we just ask you to go with us as we go about our business today. Lord, we do pray for not this coming Sunday, but the next Sunday and Saturday and Sunday for the 125-year celebration going on that you will give us all the things to work those out. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.